So maybe you've thought to invest in real estate, but you're still stuck in that due diligence phase. Well, not to encourage your analysis paralysis, but I bring Vina Jetty, the queen of multifamily investing, back on to discuss doing your due diligence on a multifamily sponsor. Residency can be such a letdown when it comes to building your financial foundation, but it truly doesn't have to be that way. If you're a physician wanting to take control over your financial future and take back the freedom you deserve, come hang out with this money nerd. No long hours or sleepless nights. Just you, me, and the Financial Residency Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Inman, and welcome back. Our show today first aired on the Facebook Live community, Physician Finance. Quote unquote, surprisingly, I talked to financial residency veteran and multifamily investing queen, Vina Jetty, who's the founding partner at Enzo Multifamily, where they manage over a billion dollars in real estate assets. She's one of the best people to learn from when it comes to multifamily. Every time I get to hear her talk about real estate, I actually learn something. And it's always exciting talking about the investment market. And that was definitely the case with her this go around. And I know you guys are going to learn something too. We delve into what we call the four pillars of multifamily investing and covering various aspects of the sponsor and actually vetting out a sponsor. Vina literally walks us through those four pillars by using Enzo's company background and team experience and due diligence and underwriting discipline, showing some of what their current portfolio looks like, the fee structure, investor relations, just to get the point across and, and really helps round out our learning experience. We learn how to make money in multifamily, just as we did in our first interview with Vina earlier this year. If you haven't heard it, go listen to that after you finish this one. By the end of them, you're going to be more informed and super thrilled that you stay tuned. Now, here's our show with Vina. Enjoy. Vina, welcome back on the show. Really excited to have you here. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. So we've kind of tossed ideas back and forth about what we would chat on. And Mm -hmm. we came up with that no one really talks about vetting a multifamily sponsor. And so I was like, who better to have on the show and talk about this (laughs) than the queen of multifamily. So let's jump right in. So basically, we talked kind of offline here about some questions that we could ask. I think the best Mm -hmm. way to go about this is to look at it as I'll ask the questions and you kind of give me what people should be looking for and why. And I think Mm -hmm. the why is going to be the most important Mm -hmm. in this. So there's really four pillars that I kind of looked at. And those are, you know, essentially asking about the company, the background and team experience as one. The next Mm -hmm. would be due diligence. Mm -hmm. Uh, The third pillar I kind of look at is like the current portfolio and especially want to talk on the fee structure. And then the Mm -hmm. last one I think would be investor relations. So let's just jump right in and talk on company background and team experience. And I think the Mm -hmm. first question I'd like to lead off with is how is the team structured? Yeah. So I'm a founding partner of Enzo Multifamily for anybody who doesn't know what I do yet. And so our team is structured where we have four partners. All four of us play our independent roles really, really well, but then we also overlap in a lot of places. So there's always a second or third set of eyes on everything and every aspect of our operations, essentially. So for example, I do a lot of our investor relations. I help manage our investors. Anybody who invests with us, their point of contact will likely be me. 
Pooja and Neil also help with that piece of it. Then we have our like financials, debt structuring, underwriting. And that is all my partner, Spontalati, who was on your podcast last time with Mm -hmm. me. And so he is just really great at slicing a deal and looking at deals in financial modeling that like I just can't do. So I don't try to. I understand underwriting. So I like know enough to be dangerous and I can be like his second set of eyes because I can walk through a deal with him and we can kind of talk about some of the assumptions made, but he really handles the heavy lifting there. Then I have Neil Dandona, who's actually a physician as well. He is an anesthesiologist by day, multifamily investor by night. And so he helps with the capital raising, but then he also does a lot on our operation side. He's the one that will interface with property management and make sure our business plan is being implemented correctly. And then our fourth partner is Pooja Talati. She's actually Sapin's sister, but she's also married to a physician. So she's in this group as well. Her husband's an ophthalmologist, but she is our brand strategy marketing guru. She comes from the Hershey company, Hershey Kisses, where her brand, you might have heard of them. Nope. <laughs> never, never heard of them. <laughs> yeah. So uh, <laughs> that was her. I'll tell her she did a bad job on it. <laughs> yeah. Clearly her marketing is terrible. I've never heard yeah, of it. Yeah. Awful job. No one's ever heard of your last project. <laughs> so she is now doing brand and marketing strategy. And I always like joke that everything pretty that Enzo puts out, it was totally her, even though I'd like to take all the credit for it. We're not going to allow you to take credit. I know. She won't either because she puts a lot of work into it, but it looks great. So I'd like to take credit for it. And so like sometimes I'll put things together and I'll send it to her for final edits and she'll be like, what, what just happened? What train wreck <laughs> why, like, why? just occurred here? <laughs> why did this happen? <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. So and she's out on maternity leave right now. So she's like, I'm sure dying a little bit inside every time I send an email out. It's funny. <laughs> yeah. So she does our brand and marketing strategy. She also helps with investor relations and she'll help with like some of the management of the asset. And then she gets involved on the operational side when it comes to like marketing the asset to the residents or potential tenants. Mm-hmm. So that's some really good background on your firm. And I think Mm -hmm. that was needed because we need to understand there's a lot of moving pieces and there's a lot of people Mm -hmm. that are in the mix on this. So when a potential investor is vetting a multifamily sponsor, why is it important that they ask how is the team structured and at least understanding the partner's backgrounds? Okay, as we go through this, I'm going to kind of like take off my GP hat and put on my investment hat because I also invest in multifamily, right? And so I invest in other operators deals. So I'll kind of guide you through how I ask my questions and what my process is as I'm probably investing into someone else's deal. So I always like to understand who the GP side and just for anybody who's not familiar, GP means the general partner. It's also called the syndicator or the operator or the deal sponsor, all interchangeable. But essentially, that is the group or entity or person who is sourcing the deal, who's putting the deal together, and then doing everything from implementing the business plan all the way through exit. The LP or the passive investor limited partner or investors, as we sometimes just refer to the LP side, is where people who don't have experience can sit. So as I'm on the LP side or the investor side, it's the passive side. So as an LP, I always ask what the GP roles and responsibilities are because I like to know how much experience they have and how much time they spend doing this, right? Like we only have the same 24 hours in a day. And if somebody is working another full-time job that maybe takes up, you know, 40, 50, 60 hours of their week, 
how much time can they dedicate to the project? Now, that's definitely not a deal breaker. There's a lot of great operators that have other full-time gigs, but it's something that for my personal investment criteria, it's kind of important because I want whoever's operating it to at least have one partner who's fully invested into this, who like eats, sleeps, and breeds multifamily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I completely agree. You know, are you doing it full time? And mm-hmm. of the partners, how many are doing it full time? Yeah. And then I also like to understand, like, have you been through a market cycle? Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. That's always something you want to ask. I come from the corporate real estate world. So I've been in like multi hundred million dollar plus deals and billion dollar deals during a market cycle. I come from a heavy family investing background. So my family's been in real estate for like 30 something years now. And so I kind of grew up around this and we've been through multiple (laughs) ups and downs in the market. And Mm -hmm. so, I mean, that's really right now, everybody is a great deal sponsor because everybody should be making money in real estate right now. The market is so hot. You can literally like close your eyes and like point on a map and you should be making money. It's what happens over these next couple of years as we see the market kind of soften that we want to kind of pay attention to what happens there. Yeah, completely agree. So let's kind of shift over to the second pillar now, which is really due diligence. Mm -hmm. If an investor is going to vet a sponsor and they want Mm -hmm. to start asking questions on due diligence, Mm -hmm. my first question is like, how do you as a sponsor actually conduct due diligence? So if you could kind of tell us why that's important asking a sponsor this question. Let me like take it back one step. So due diligence is basically doing a thorough investigation of not only the asset and the team, but also what's the business plan, right? You're going to conduct due diligence on that. Because if I put a $10 million asset in front of you and say, hey, look, in three years, I'm going to make it worth $20 million, There's not a single market that you're going to be doing that in just like period ever. Or maybe you are, but it's like highly aggressive play. It'll be something that's like super risky. So you want to look at what's the business plan? How are you going to get there? Are you going to be doing a deep value add by renovating units and bringing it up to market? Are you planning on doing this by just adding washers and dryers? Is that your entire business plan? So you want to know what that delta is from entry to exit and how the sponsor operator is planning on getting there. So the due diligence for us on the sponsor side starts all the way before any investor ever sees a deal. For every 200 deals that we see, we probably say yes to about one. That's like our rate of rejection. So 199 deals have been rejected by the time any of our investors see one. So the level of due diligence that goes in before that starts with underwriting. So we start by underwriting the deal. We're analyzing the deal location, the age of the building. We're analyzing if it's an older building, are there certain things we don't like to see? Or if there are, how do we mitigate them such as Boiler and chiller systems, for example, our roofs are a big thing. When we're doing the initial walk of the property before we make an offer, we often bring our contractors out with us to do the property walk. So we go into the deal having a much better idea of what our CapEx or capital expenditures or deferred maintenance is on the deal. So that's like the initial piece of due diligence. Then we always walk all of the comps in the area. So anything that we're using as kind of market data We go in, I pretend like I'm renting a unit there and I ask all these questions and I'm sure they figure me out because I'm like, okay, so how many units do you have vacant right now? They're like, why? Just interested in who my neighbors are. (laughs) Right, right. Well, and that is a question I actually ask. I ask, okay, so who else lives here? Is it like families? Is it like young professionals? Where do they go when they leave this 
apartment, do they go to buy a house or are they moving to another complex? If they're moving to another complex, I want to know why. Are they moving to one down the street because it looks better, because it has better amenities, it's cheaper? What's the reason that's driving turnover? Because once we understand that, we can really make plans around that to try to mitigate that kind of risk. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. I look at it as, I guess the follow-up to that would be, how familiar is the team with the area? Why do you like the area so much? I know that that is kind of a favorite of mine to think about or to ask because it's really telling. Maybe go into why that's important. Yeah. So the markets that Enzo specifically plays in as lead operators or sponsors is really the DFW Metro and the Florida markets, specifically Jacksonville, Tampa, Orlando, and the surrounding areas there. The reason that we focus so much on these markets is because we found it's very, very difficult to be very well-versed in more than three markets. That's about like the cap. Maybe, you know, a fourth, especially if it's somewhere like close by drivable. Like if your market's DFW, maybe, you know, like Waco or Temple, which is only a two hour drive from here, but it's a secondary market. So we really focus on our markets and we make sure we know them well. So we see every deal that trades on the market. We see everything. We look We ask questions. We know the brokers there. The brokers know us. We get a lot of off-market deals this way. So for us, it's very, very important to know that market. Dallas specifically, my partner Neil and I both live here. Seppin started investing here over a decade ago. So he's very familiar with the market as well. And then the Florida markets, actually, Seppin's family is from those Florida markets. His in-laws still live there today. And all of us have been there multiple times now, just going and walking the markets, understanding what they look like, understanding why it's growing, what we like about the area, what growth indicators are. You said a couple of questions that I think are important, Mm -hmm. but to kind of play off of those, if Mm -hmm. I'm an investor and I'm hitting up basically multifamily sponsor and I'm saying, hey, why do you like this market? What should those answers look like or what could follow up questions be? So typically what we like to see as metrics when we invest or when we sponsor a deal is we like to see job growth and we like to see indicators, what we call leading indicators, not lagging indicators. Some examples of that might be actually in the physician finance group. One of the big things that we use as a leading indicator is anytime these large hospital systems are expanding or buying up more facilities or there's a shortage of doctors, because that's information as physicians, we are obviously very sensitive to. And when I say we, I totally mean my husband, not me. I'm just married to medicine. I'm not in medicine. So, but, you know, we're sensitive to it because I can see my husband's schedule directly changing. You know, last year, maybe at this time he had 13 patients a day and now he has 14 or 15 or 16. And we can see, we know when his group is hiring more doctors. So we know that they're getting busier. So those are actually leading indicators that we use mainly because we're around it so much. So it's easy for us to use those. Another really great example is any of the big blue chip clients, we like to call them. So like Costco, Nordstrom, in Jacksonville, Wayfair actually just announced a move. Amazon is a great example. Any of those companies moving in and especially building facilities and centers there, we like to see that because when they decide to put up a location, it's so well researched that they use thousands of data points. And because construction of Costco can take 18 to 24 months, They've already been doing planning for the next five years out, which overlaps our time cycle pretty robustly. So that's why we like to see that. So those are some of the leading indicators we look for. Steady job growth. 
We don't like any markets where it's like heavily reliant on any one sector. That's not to say we wouldn't do a deal there, but we definitely would look for ways to mitigate that risk because we see that as a big risk factor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When these big companies put, you know, millions of dollars in due diligence <laughs> yeah. into something, like you, right. you tend to listen. It's like, they oh, need- wow, Costco, Walmart, and these uh, other big you know companies decided to go into this section of town at this same time. Right. Maybe exactly. that part of town is going to be growing rapidly. And exactly. that might actually be somewhere we can look at. I mean, that's just not multifamily. That's just investing in general. In general. Yeah, no, exactly. And also, you have to remember, too, that with the influx, like, so I live in Dallas. So it's a really great example. When Liberty Mutual and Toyota moved their headquarters here, it's like five miles from my house, our house value shot up. And there's so much multifamily that came up around here because the people who work there needed to live somewhere and only execs could afford these three, four, five hundred thousand dollar plus houses. So you have to create a housing space. There's a lot of demand for people that work in these facilities as well. Yeah, I remember chatting with my brother when he was telling me Google's going in a different place and that you know they needed to essentially buy before it got crazy. And I'm like, you know, thinking like it's gonna get crazy as soon as Google officially announces it, you should probably move quick. <laughs> Yes, right? you definitely before, should. You know, you 10,000 people you know, yeah. end up starting work there and then they all want to live close and then, you yeah. know, prices skyrocket. Another question that I like a lot actually is, you know, are the GPs putting in any capital? Mm-hmm. Like, are they investing alongside me or are they just putting in, you know, sweat equity and time or whatever? Like, what does that look like? If you could kind of go into why would an investor really want to know that of their sponsor? Yeah, so Enzo being on the GP side, so on not on the investor side, but on the GP side, we always have GP money at risk on our deals. So it can be a combination of multiple things. It can be either, you know, an Enzo fund, it could be all four of the partners, it could be some combination of one or two or three or four of the partners. It just varies deal mm-hmm. to deal. And the amount can vary from deal to deal. So for example, on our Jacksonville asset that we closed at the end of August, all of us had put money into that. And I actually ended up having to give up a part of my spot to an investor, which I was really trying not to. So I called Neil, my other partner up, and I asked him, I was like, hey, do you want to like sell part of your slice to someone else? He was like, nice try. I'm not getting rid of it. I want to keep it. So typically partners are kind of trying to fight for our spots in the deals. But we naturally prioritize investors. That's important for someone on the LP side. So I always, this is the first question I always ask GPs when I'm talking to them is, are you putting any of your own money into the deal? And if they specifically are not, is anybody from the GP side putting money in? And as long as there's one GP putting money in, that's good for me. The reason you care about that is because, well, if you don't believe in the deal, why should I, you know, so that's kind of the question I have. Now, there's a lot of people who just don't have the liquidity or who can't put the money in for whatever reason. And that's okay, too. But I would really want to understand how they're overcoming that hurdle. Because they're not at risk capital yet, they're just at sweat equity risk. And so that's kind of what we look to understand. And the answers will vary from sponsor to sponsor. But I think Mm -hmm. most sponsors and operators put in have some GP capital in. Yeah. And I would look for the same thing. I'd want to know why. Because that would be, to me, very strange unless they said, hey, we just did six deals. And this (gasps) crazy deal happened to come down. And at that point, I'd be like, maybe... 
But at the still, I'd be like, if this is that good of a deal that you're raising money and you're putting your name behind it and work behind it, like yeah. someone should be putting something behind it. And if exactly. they're not, like, yeah, I mean, most of our deals, that? right. Most of our deals, it's not even just one of the partners. My mom and dad invest into a ton of our deals. My brother-in-law invests into our deals. My in-laws invest. So, like, this is like a family thing. We mm-hmm. all invest into these deals. So it's not like it's just my money that goes at risk or one of my partner's monies that goes at risk. It's our family relationships and our closest friends. So it's really important to us to kind of go above and beyond for those investors. That's my new criteria question. Is mom and dad investing? (laughs) Do your mom and dad give you money or not? (laughs) And if so, then I'm cool. I'll look more at it. If no mom, then no money. I've been spending my mom and dad's money for years. I'm a pro. Yeah. Yeah. They're they're still waiting for you to leave. I know, right? (laughs) All right. So we've got the third kind of pillar here, and that's really about the current portfolio and the fee structure. And so I really want to jump into the fee structure because as an advisor, I get grilled on the fee structure and I can't wait to grill someone else. (laughs) So let's talk about fees, fees, and fees. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) But I actually think it's important to talk about the fee structure because it is really different in this space. I think sponsors should be able to talk through all the fee structure and like what is being charged and how these look like. So the three main ones that I think of, and I know there's probably a couple extra that are like super nuanced to specific deals, but is the asset acquisition fee. And then you've got the asset management fee and a disposition fee. So I'd like Mm -hmm. if you could maybe give a definition for all three and then kind of talk through maybe what's the norm that if Mm -hmm. someone was vetting a different you know, sponsor, what should they be looking for? Mm -hmm. Acquisition fee is kind of the first fee that's charged and or earned. And what that is, like I said, we do one out of every 200 deals. So there's a lot of due diligence that happens before an investor ever sees the deal. So that's kind of what justifies the acquisition cost. So that's the fee for finding the deal, getting it under contract, sourcing the financing, putting the whole deal together from start to finish. And then being able to move into the operational phase post-close. That fee can be anywhere from 2 to 4% typically. So I'm starting to see a lot of deals now from sponsors where there's no acquisition fee or there's like half a percent or 1%. So my thought on that is always, why is your fee so low? Because 2 to 4% is fairly standard. On larger deals, you'll see maybe like 25 to on smaller deals, you might see three or four. It just it depends, and it depends on the operator and their experience level, and if they're bringing you know some amount of financial strength to the deal. There's a lot of variables that go into mm-hmm. it. But whenever I see someone under that two percent or far under, like one point seven five, fine. But like when I see someone not charging an acquisition fee or half a percent or even one percent, I always ask them why because this is one of the major ways that we get paid on the sponsor side, and it covers our due diligence costs. So we incur a lot of costs out of pocket to maintain Enzo operating. This goes toward that. And then naturally, obviously, we get some of that as partners, we take home a payday as well. But you always want to know why, because whenever someone is not charging adequate fees on any of these, actually, I always ask, is it because there's not enough money in the deal? that you can't afford to charge these fees because there should be enough money to hit your returns, have a good LP return, and also for everybody to make money. So we should be making money as well. And you want your sponsor to be making money on this deal because that's where they're going to pay their attention the most is the deals that do really well for them. 
So the second fee is asset management fee. That is just like managing the manager's day-to-day operations. You know, we send out our newsletters, prep K-1s, interface with cost segregation, decide what business plans to implement, what time we do all the analysis on the property alongside property management. That fee is typically anywhere from one to two, maybe 3%, but that's kind of on the highest side. But I would say about one and a half to 2% is fairly standard. This is a fee where if it's lower or less, I don't get as concerned because it's such a minute amount compared to the total deal size and it doesn't necessarily change the incentive for the operator. So this fee is not a really big one, but it is one that is typically underwritten into the deals. And then the third is the disposition fee. So that means when we go to sell the asset, who is managing that sale and making sure that everything closes smoothly. There's hundreds of man hours that go into a closing. So, you know, we have to construct a war room, we have to provide financials, we have to get insurance squared away. So there's a lot of moving pieces. So that fee is typically about a 1% fee. I haven't really seen anything much higher than that. Some operators don't charge disposition fees. It just kind of depends on who they are. Again, if someone's not charging a fee that's fairly standard, I always ask why. The answer might be that they just don't have enough experience, so they couldn't afford to justify it, or their investor, they had a large check writer who said absolutely not. So there's a lot of reasons why these could vary, but typically these are the three major fees that we see. Yeah. And the next piece on this is like, and I I look at this from the investment, like past performance Mm -hmm. doesn't guarantee future results, but I still want to know what kind of assets do you have? How are they performing? What's just in that portfolio that you guys are working through? So I know why I would ask this, but why would an investor who's just starting to do Mm -hmm. their due diligence care about what basically their sponsor has done in the past? To answer why you care about this first, you care about it because you want to know that whatever assumptions and whatever business plan this team has put in place in the past has actually worked. It won't necessarily be the same business plan. It won't necessarily be the same projections, but as long as they're hitting or exceeding their pro forma projections, you know that they're being conservative or being at the very least consistent with what the market can deliver. Like you want to know more about the thought process than you care about the actual number of it. You want them to explain to you why their business plan makes sense, why they like this area, why they like this asset, why this one specifically and not the one down the street. So that's why you want to ask about past performance. In our portfolio, we have, well, I guess 160 units is our smallest asset. But I was going to say, we typically go for anything 100 units above, but it's really ending up being like 200 plus units is kind of what we're looking at. We would do 100 units at a minimum. Is that mostly because economies of scale? Yeah, economies of scale. And then there's also less competition with the more units that you have. Takes more Uh, money. Right. (laughs) It takes a lot more money, but it's funny because it's always much easier to fund the larger projects than it is to fund smaller ones. Like there's this weird spot at like, seven to 10, 11 million, which you would think is really easy to fund because it's a small deal size. It is the most difficult to fund. And it takes up just as much time as me funding like a 15, 20, $30 million asset. So it's a labor of love at that at that mm-hmm. point. But so yeah, we have about, I want to say our most recent valuation is about 250 million currently in the portfolio. And we're looking at a couple more right now. We thought we were done for the year. Looks like we might not be. 
So there may be a couple of assets. We're not under contract yet, so we're still working on those. And those will be probably Q1 if any or all of them come to fruition. So for next year, our goal is kind of to do, you know, 150 million in assets, but that's with the caveat that we can find great deals. If we can't, then we just, we don't, we just don't try to hit those numbers. It's just kind of, well, if we have multiple deals where we can comfortably keep up with the level of demand. Yeah. It's all about going back to that investment strategy and kind Mm -hmm. of figuring out like, what is the sponsor's edge? You know, Mm -hmm. how confident are, are they in their strategy? Is it conservative underwriting? Because that's really like the foundation of a successful business is you don't overextend, Mm -hmm. you don't over leverage, you stick to Mm -hmm. what your investing principles are. And, you know, I think from an investor side on that, it shows that the sponsors, you know, maintain discipline and they're not swayed by emotion. The market's hot. Let's throw it all in. Like, we'll catch the ride. Like, if you stick to what it is. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's how people get burned real bad. So if you stick to what it is and you stick to your guns, like you don't overcommit. I think that is what makes up a really good sponsor. Yeah, I agree. I mean, and I think in that same vein, do we have a couple of minutes to kind of talk about how yeah. sponsors can be more conservative on underwriting? Let's do it. Okay. Because I always laugh when I'm like, oh, yeah, we're super conservative on underwriting. Because I'm like, who says like, oh, by the way, I've been really aggressive on this. I don't think I'm going to make these, you know, like everybody says that. So Mm -hmm. instead of saying we are conservative when we underwrite, I like to kind of point out a couple of ways in which a sponsor can be conservative. And these are questions that your listeners can ask their operators to try to understand. So the first thing, like you said, was in these really, really hot market, most assets right now are what we call debt coverage constrained. So debt service coverage constrained. So that means that for every dollar of debt you put on the property, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac require you to have a dollar twenty-five in income. And that's their what's called the debt service coverage ratio. Assets that have a higher DSCR, so like 1.5, 1.6, are fantastic assets because they have so much income coming in that they can more than cover their debt service. So what's happening in today's market, because of the constraint of the debt coverage, a lot of assets are only being leveraged to 60% or 65% instead of going all the way to 80 like we used to do. Now, what that means for sponsors is if you're a strong sponsor, you can bring more equity to the deal because you see value. And instead of putting in 20% like we did, now we put in 35% or 36% or whatever that number is, because now you're kind of hedging against any dips in the market or downturn in the market and still being able to maintain the asset. So that's one way in which a lot of sponsors are becoming more conservative. We are now being much, much more careful and we haven't taken anything that is short term. People take bridge loans because of the debt service constraints. They'll typically go to a dollar five cents on the DSCR, so the income versus the debt. Mm -hmm. So they'll give you a lot more leverage and they might go up to 80%. But you have to refi it out as short-term debt. So you have to refi it out in a year or 18 months or whatever that short-term debt is. And we're in a rising interest rate environment. So we don't know if a year from now, you know, today, maybe you can, you know, you're locking in some... Right, exactly. Because right now you might be locking in the high fours, low fives, probably low fives right now. But in a year, you could be in like the six, six and a half, which is fine. But have you underwritten for that? Yeah, there goes your pro forma. Exactly. If your pro forma reflects that, great, no problem. But if you're going into your pro forma, assuming you'll be able to get four and a half percent debt in a year, I wouldn't bet on that, would you? Mm -mm. 
Nope. So not right. with my money. Right, right. You know, you're not doing it. And even if else. even if mom's in the deal, I'm not jumping in with, with even money with like mom? that. Oh, maybe no. my mom needs to call you then. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure your mom so, and I would be friends. Yeah, you probably would be. You guys would have so much to talk about. <laughs> so and then like we increase our expenses, we stress test the vacancy. We don't increase income. So we leave our income based off of the seller's T12. So that's the trailing 12 months of financials. So if they have a million dollars in income on the T12, we use a million dollars of income. And we start that as our base. Then we stress it and like make it really ridiculous and crazy. And like, oh my gosh, what if everything was going wrong all at the same time? And then we kind of reset it. But we want to see what those different scenarios look like. We want to do a sensitivity analysis so we know that. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say is a sensitivity analysis. You yeah. need to do that. You need to understand like, mm-hmm. you know, you don't want it to be Armageddon out there. But like, guess what? If something happens, do you have to hold the asset longer? You know, what can it, you you know, it? basically can you do? Yeah. Let me add one more thing. To okay. That. Oh, gosh. Now I lost my train of thought. All Never right. mind. Okay. So the fourth (laughs) pillar that we're going to talk about is the investor relations. And I don't want to make this sound like that is not an important thing because I believe it is. Mm -hmm. But all of this other stuff, in my opinion, took precedence or priority. But I do want to go into the investor relations. And that Mm -hmm. really is talking about like, how well does that company effectively communicate what they're trying to do? And does that same communication extend into the deal once money has been funded. It's not just raise money and then peace yeah. out. You're not going to hear from us. And then bye. <laughs> right. right. We, we want to uh, make sure that there's some communication and how does that work? So maybe just give a, a minute or two on, on the investor relations side and why that's important. Well, like I told you, my investors show up to Thanksgiving dinner. So <laughs> we have a lot of communication. Hey, where's where's my uh, invite to Thanksgiving dinner? Hey, there's an open door here and you know it. <laughs> Conveniently after uh, Thanksgiving. Okay, fine. Christmas is coming up. You can come for Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> We'll buy you matching pajamas and everything. So it'll be, you'll be part of the family. Done and done. (laughs) So one of the things we kind of pride ourselves on is our investor relations. You know, every investor that invests with us, we treat them like family. We're very close to them. Like I know when their birthdays are and I know who their kids are. And, you know, we just, we talk just outside of investing. But as far as like formal communications go, we send out a monthly email. So every asset will have its own email. So we have investors that are in like five of our assets and they get five emails in a row from me. But it tells them what's going on on each of their properties. So it'll say, hey, we renovated three units this month. We got $50 per month higher on the pro forma. We have implemented paid parking, which we weren't planning on doing. So Great news, we're operating above where we thought we'd be, or we're basically right on projection. It'll say, we've refreshed the clubhouse, click here for pictures, or here's an article of something really interesting happening in this market. Make sure you look at this because it affects your property. So we'll connect all of those things through a monthly email. We also do a monthly newsletter that goes out to everybody on our database, not just investors. And that email is basically communication that just kind of states, what trends are, if there's anything that we feel is really important. It's really only like four blogs or articles. So we really, really pick very like juicy topics to say things that we feel like investors that don't do this day in and day out and that are looking at this email for five minutes while they're waiting in line at Starbucks, this is what they read. And it's the most important topics we want them to know about. So Aside from most of our investors don't open my emails because they see their monthly check and that's all they care about. 
So they don't even open the emails after like the first or second one. Once they start getting their checks, that's all they care about. And then we're always available via email or phone. You know, I, I have a lot of investors that text me and you know how much I hate text. So yeah. I try to be good about responding to them. But really, I mean, if there's ever anything that someone needs to talk to us about, either I pick up the phone and call or they schedule with one of my admins and get onto my calendar so they can have, you know, undivided attention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's important. You want to make sure that if I'm investing in someone in, in a deal, you know, I'm not just investing mm-hmm. the deal. I'm investing with the sponsor because exactly. I want them to put money in, but I'm also yeah. investing in them. Right. I know that they can do it and that I'm alongside for the ride, but I want to hear from them. And you want someone who's going to be proactive about when things aren't going right either, Mm -hmm. because not every deal is going to always go according to pro forma, but you want to know about no deal ever goes according to pro forma. Yeah, no, it really doesn't. Oh, actually, I remember what I was going to tell you when you're vetting the deal and like how conservative a sponsor is being, ask them or look at what they've included in ways they're boosting their income. If they have put every single source of income into their pro forma to make the deal work, it's probably a little bit on the aggressive side. So for example, if we think we can get $15 $15 for parking and $35 for washer and dryer, we might just underwrite for $25 total for both things. So if we get it great, if we don't, that's fine too. If we get partial, that's fine. And so it just, it makes the underwriting a little bit more conservative. Sorry, I forgot about that one. No, it's all good. <laughs> it's, it's a good one because if you're trying to boost the return and you're adding in every little piece, I mean, it's nothing goes too- according to pro forma. You get way too exactly. specific. You know, that might be how they hit that IR or that hurdle or whatever they're trying to to accomplish. So that's exactly it. Well, Vina, I appreciate you so much for being on the show and for doing this. Thank you again. And it's always an honor to talk and hang out with you. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for having me. It's always fun. Let's do it again soon. Totally down. Today, we're going to be discussing an article that was posted on the site, Passive Income MD, titled, The Four Ways to Make Money in Owning Real Estate. I thought it was rather fitting, as we discussed the four pillars of vetting a multifamily sponsor in our show, that this article talks about the other side of investing in real estate, by putting in the hard work and directly owning the property with no outside capital or partners. While this is hard to do on a large scale, I promise you this is not truly passive income or mailbox money like we discussed in the show, but this is one way to do it, and Passive Income MD wrote a great article summarizing the key points. There are four ways to make money in owning real estate. The first that he highlights is appreciation. It's not just the appreciation you think of, like a home going up in value, but he mentions forced appreciation. I quote, Forced appreciation is where an owner can help increase the value of the property by improving the property itself. For example, you might renovate a kitchen and the bathrooms in a home, enabling you to sell it at a higher value. If it's an apartment building, you might be able to raise rents or lower expenses, thereby increasing the overall net operating income. This, in turn, increases the building's value. The second way to make money is cash flow, one of my personal favorites. Simply put, I quote, it's what's left over from the rental income when the expenses are paid off each month. If there's a surplus, that's a positive cash flow. If there's a deficit, that's a negative cash flow. Now, obviously, the goal isn't to acquire a bunch of properties with negative cash flow, so due diligence and running the numbers are critical. Think of it this way 
You make money when you buy real estate, not when you sell it. Let that sink in for a second. I'll repeat it. You make money when you buy real estate, not when you sell it. The third way is a way that actually most people don't think of, and it's taxes in the form of depreciation. I quote, depreciation, whereby the IRS allows you to determine the value of the actual building, divide that value by 27.5, the useful life of the property as determined by the IRS, and deduct that precise amount each year. For example, and I love when he puts numbers to things, if your property, the building itself, is valued at 500000 you would divide that by 27 and a half years, which equals 18000 and you'll be able to deduct 18000 as depreciation expense each year for 27 and a half years. This deduction allows you to report a smaller profit to the IRS, thereby reducing the amount you ultimately owe in taxes. The final way is by forced savings, and that's done through mortgage principal paydown, adding more capital to the minimum monthly payment, which goes directly to the principal the amount you borrowed and and still owe, not prepaying the interest. While everyone's situation is different, I can tell you mine as it relates to this. I don't personally like to hold a lot of bonds, and so as a proxy to bonds, I like to pay down the mortgage a little bit quicker by adding more to our monthly payment. And while I'm diversifying and investing elsewhere, I do like to toss some extra capital to the mortgage. So not only is the renter paying my mortgage for me, because it's cash flow positive, they're slowly buying the property little by little for me, just like passive income MD states. I really like this article. It's short, it's to the point, but it packs a huge punch in high quality content. I'll link to it in the show notes at financialresidency.com. So please go there and check it out. Isn't Vina awesome? She seriously knows her stuff, and it's always a pleasure chatting with her. To quickly recap, Vina helped us understand the four pillars of multifamily investing and understanding how to actually vet a multifamily sponsor properly. And that's really important for anyone wanting to learn how to become a successful investor. For the first pillar, we covered the company background and the team experience. And it was really nice that she was able to relate this to Enzo as they have four partners where everyone has an overlapping role to help manage investors, financial modeling, all the way down to company branding. We learn about what GPs are or general partners, as well as limited partners or LPs, and describe which side of the experience bar you might land on. And that's really important to know like what the partner's responsibilities are, because ultimately the amount of time that they invest in their projects really matters. The second pillar is due diligence, and this is really an investigation of the assets, the team, and honestly, their business plan. And when a sponsor starts underwriting, they're looking at not only the physical aspects and understanding the property and figuring out how to mitigate risk, but they're also looking at the Walmarts and the Costco's of the world and how are they doing their due diligence. And you really need to have your thumb on what they're doing, why they're doing it, where they're doing it. And paying attention to those indicators is really important. The third pillar, we talked about Enzo's current portfolio, but also I got to grill her on fees. So nice to be on the other side of that conversation. Vina talked through the acquisition fee for finding a deal, getting it under contract, sourcing financing, and moving through the operational phase. We talked about asset management fees, 
prepping K1s, the day-to-day operations, and the third fee we talked about is disposition fees, which honestly constructs financials, insurance, and pays for the massive amounts of man hours that go into each deal. Vina also discussed what kind of assets they have at Enzo and what assumptions investors really care about. And speaking of investors, the fourth pillar is investor relations and why having close, trusted relationships with investors is super important. Inviting them to Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner isn't out of the question. Apparently, I'm still waiting for my formal invite. Hint, hint. I'm just kidding, Vina. This facilitates a strong communication line, which is important at every point in the investment cycle. Treating investors like family, as well as keeping them in the loop with what's happening in their properties means they're doing a good job at managing that relationship. So this is a really cool show. I think it is amazing for Vina to come on again and to really help us understand multifamily investing. And good news for all of us, she's in our financial residency group. So if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to her and honestly, just let us know what you thought about the show. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, this was recorded live in a Facebook group. If you think you'd like to watch the podcast be recorded live, I'd love to hear your feedback. If this is something that the community would love to see more of, and I think it would facilitate maybe more open discussion or provide you a space to ask questions, I'm all for it. So please let me know by answering the poll that's in the Facebook community, which you can join at financialresidency.com slash community. And let me know if you would like to see the podcast recorded live. This podcast is like a marriage. You get out of it what you put in. So if you show up and put in the time to learn about financial topics most affecting you, you're more likely to grow your financial savviness. But here's the thing. What you hear in the show is to be taken on the generic stride. It's a blanket adaptation of different financial topics affecting physician families. I can't guarantee any specific advice because honestly, I don't know who you are or what financial challenges you're facing. I'd recommend consulting a fee-only financial planner like myself, an attorney, or a CPA with any of your questions. Next week, we have our 50th show, The Big 5-0. Cue the applause. So for this special episode, I bring on my friend and fellow money nerd, Whitney Hansen. We chat all about lifestyle inflation and how to combat those tendencies that come at you when you might let your spending go every once in a while. This is going to be a show that you definitely don't want to miss. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.